Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast, I'm Matt Deacon. On the show today, the film and TV industry prepares to fight tax changes that could lead to fewer productions being housed in the UK. Richard Sharp, our good friend, faces fresh calls to resign as the BBC braces for two huge global broadcasts. So should the BBC be fighting harder for its reputation? Plus, CEO of Love Productions, Richard McCarrow, joins us to discuss his brand new series for Channel 4, The Piano. And to commemorate World Radio Day earlier this week, the Media Quiz looks at radio's past, present and future. That's all coming up in this edition of the Media Podcast. In the news this week, TikTok creators may soon be able to charge fans to view their videos. The video app's reportedly seeking new tactics to spur growth as it sees its audience stall in the US for the first time. Meanwhile, BBC offices have been raided in New Delhi and Mumbai by Indian tax authorities, probably connected to the Modi government's censure of India, the Modi question that aired less than a month ago and was dismissed as propaganda by the leading political party. And turning to crimes against the press closer to home, over in King's Cross, the Guardian's offices remain pretty quiet. Two months on from a ransomware attack, according to Private Eye, it's suggested that some freelancers have also not been paid since Christmas due to the ongoing fallout from the attack. Also late on payments, Vice Media has received $30 million in debt financing from Fortress Investment Group. The media company reportedly owes millions to vendors and advisors. Let's hope they pay up. But on today's show, I've got two media experts here to help us digest the biggest stories of the week. First up, TV producer extraordinaire Stephen D. Wright. Uh, Good to have you on the show. What have you been up to? Uh, Watching TV, of course. It's uh, so-called golden age, you know, and... uh... That's all I do anymore. Watch TV, basically. Nothing else but watch TV. Live and breathe it. Aren't we upgraded now to the platinum age of television? Gold wasn't good enough. It's more like that sort of, you know, what's it called? Copper plated, really. Looks like gold, but comes off <laughs> and you, makes your hands go dirty. That's what it's looked. That's the real golden age. <laughs> so are you going to be watching uh, the BAFTAs this weekend? Oh, I, it's been so boring for the last, I don't know, 10 years. It's really, really dull to watch. Plus, I hate everybody else winning because I know them all. And so uh, it's very difficult for me to watch that with a kind of, you know, yeah, well done. But no, no, it's, it's a really boring show. That's the problem. I think we're, we're all got awards, you know, for fatigue now, you know. Well, the, the main reason we all watch award ceremonies is that we hope there's a massive disaster. I mean, that's we're generally hoping for the car crash, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing about award shows. They can be brilliant, but most often they're really dull because they they slightly censor it, you know, or they or they 
they take out the bits because they don't want to offend Prince William or something. You know what I mean? It's, and it's always a bit nothing as a result. That's the problem, you know? Well, also with us is radio consultant Anne Charles. So Monday was uh, World Radio Day and there was a kind of flood of happy posts from the radio community. Did you celebrate World Radio Day? I did. I went for lunch with my very dear friend Sue Bergen, who I worked with in New Zealand and is in the UK for, um, well, for a couple more days. And so we had a wonderful catch up and it was so lovely to see her. Lovely. Well, a new story that has been somewhat rumbling on is our good friend, the chair of the BBC, Richard Sharp. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who he used to employ, has rejected calls uh, for him to stand down despite fresh calls for resignation from all across the industry. Jonathan Dimbleby this week saying uh, what Mr Sharp should do is fall on his sword. Uh, Some of us have disagreed, but I don't see a big long list of, of supporters for him. Though Simon Jenkins was kind of saying his Tory powers means that he should stick around at the BBC. And should he stay or should he go? I can understand why he probably feels personally a bit aggrieved and doesn't think he's done anything wrong. But in the good old days, if there was a perception of uh, a problem with impartiality, um, then that would be enough. It's interesting. I mean, the BBC have got a busy few months coming up. We've got uh, King Charles coronation, we've got Eurovision, and that's all happening in the same eight-day period, which the BBC has to cover. And a friend of the show, Scott Bryan, was saying in Variety this week that the BBC needs to be a bit more boastful about its successes and not let the negatives overshadow what it does well. Stephen, do you think this negative press is, is bad news for the Beeb, or is it just, it's just what happens? Well... It always happens with the BBC. There's always a scandal every sort of week or so. But this is a proper scandal and it's a proper political scandal. And it doesn't really matter how often Rishi says, oh, no, he's got my full confidence. This one sort of it's 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 sort of giving off kind of bad, a bad air, a bad smell, because it really does look like a proper scandal. I mean, you know, Anne's completely right. Perception is reality. Reality is perception. This looks like a scandal. It smells like a scandal. The more you look into it, the more weird it gets. Why did Boris Johnson need £800,000? Why was he looking for a job and didn't say anything? And and then, the, the you know, the MPs found he sort of had serious misgivings and blah, blah, blah. This is a proper scandal. And, and, and it is cheapening and damaging the BBC. I mean, it's overtly political. It shouldn't really be the BBC anything. This is a sort of another Tory spin-off scandal. But it makes the BBC look dodgy and the BBC should never look dodgy. You know what I mean? It's, it's the one thing they, they can't afford to do. The, the BBC can never look, you know, like, a, like it's working out the back of a van in Peckham. Do you know what I mean? It's sort of it's, it's got to be above that. And this feels really tawdry and, you know, and, 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 he, and Richard Sharp doesn't do himself any favours. He doesn't come across well when he's talking and nobody does. I mean, that's the thing. There's no way you can just look at this and laugh it off in the usual, you know, Daily Mail type, oh, here's a BBC scandal. This has got proper sort of legs, I think, you know, or roots. It's got roots that go deep. And what we're all doing now, I think, is waiting for the inevitable, which is him resigning in another week or two or whatever it is in that awful way that they now do it. They don't go quickly. They go in an, in ages, to, you know, and then it's sort of more embarrassing and more, you know. Well, it's also Trumpian, isn't it? I mean, I think Trump and, and Boris very much of like, no matter what we do, uh, I'm not apologising and I'm not going. I'm just going to sit here and ride it out. And there's there's a, a bit of a flavour of that, isn't there? It's a weird sort of uh, strategy because it doesn't impress anybody. You know, the Tory sort of faithful don't go great. You know, you're involved in a scandal. You're going to shirk it off. We, we don't do that because we feast on that stuff. You know, the newspapers run it every day, et cetera, et cetera. 
it's a proper scandal. I mean, you know, if you, if you want to look at another political scandal, look at Nicola Sturgeon. She just finally yeah. left after a kind of three weeks of bear baiting. And again, it's one of those ones where, you know, leave quickly, leave with your dignity and your honour. You can you can take the high moral ground. I mean, that's what Richard Sharp should be doing. He should have, you know, almost go off in a huff and everyone would have, he would have been asked back then. But instead, you stay long enough and then everybody just wants to get, to get rid. You know, it's like getting rid of somebody, you know, you know, an overnight guest that stayed too long. I mean, Anne, it's quite strange, isn't it, where normally the kind of Tory MPs love any scandal to give the BBC a bit of a kick in, but they have to sort of stay a bit stum on this one because they're sort of stuck in the mud with it. Do you think it is good news, though, that he is in with the Tories? Is actually a good thing for the BBC to, you've got licence fee negotiations always on the horizon and actually having a, a Tory mate is, is good for the corporation? I mean, that's one way to spin it. But then wh- how has he, what has he done? to bring that to the advantage of the BBC? Because that would be another thing he could say. Well, you know, actually, I forgot to mention this one thing. I'm really sorry, I messed up. However, here's what I'm going to do. It, it's not a good look for the BBC and for someone who's meant to be in charge of editorial independence to be using the fact that you've got links with the current government as a tool to why you should stay. Again, it's just a misunderstanding of the role of the governance of the BBC and what the BBC does and the importance of editorial independence. So if you've got someone with no editorial standing or editorial background coming in, the fact that he can't recognise that isn't actually in his favour either. So there's two big outside broadcasts really for the BBC. I mean, the Coronation, massive. I know that all media owners kind of contribute, but all of it's driven by the Beeb. And then they've got to nip down their own and do Eurovision. I mean, that's a lot of tech to, to, to manage, isn't it? It's an awful lot. But these are the kind of projects that the UK does really well. And things like Eurovision, it might seem like it's happening within an eight day period. And I'm sure there'll be a bit of a crossover of staff. But in reality, that will have been rigging for about two or three weeks before. There will be suppliers from across Europe who are involved in that because I think they use pretty much you know familiar teams to go from one Eurovision to another because it's kind of a slightly special event isn't it and the same with the the coronation if it's I mean I don't have access to the plans but my guess would be that they will use the template from the funeral as it's pretty similar it's you know people walking up and down a route and having a church service and again they they coordinated all of that and one of the things that they were doing was to make sure that they hired in lots of different companies to spread the work around but also so that again with an editorial independence idea so that no one commercial company can say we're the organization that delivered the coronation so yeah it is an example of things that the BBC can do well but also that the UK industry can do really well and it's not just the television and radio and broadcast industries in terms of Eurovision it's also our shows and our creative teams and our arena teams and our arena sound and lighting people and the extraordinary skills that they have. Okay, our second story of the week. The UK TV and film industry is reportedly struggling against government tax breaks, which producers say could decimate the industry. Uh, An informal task force of UK film studios, including Pinewood, is entering talks with the government over property tax hikes as well. And the BBC, ITV, Channel 4, Sky, Paramount and Netflix, not a bad group of people, uh, were among industry leaders who wrote to government warning that the threshold, this is raising the threshold, would put at risk £1.3 billion of tax 
tax revenue, 30,000 jobs and lead to fewer productions. Now, the TV production tax credit is maybe not the easiest thing to talk about. Stephen, why why are these tax credits so important for UK telly? Well, like all things, everything is about money in TV and particularly drama, which is the drama and big entertainment shows. They're the only people that really use those sets and things like that. But those those budgets are absolutely to the wire. You, you, there's not that much money in making programmes. There never is. What there is money in is selling programmes. So if you're making a programme, you might have a £10 million budget, but you'll probably spend £9.5 million of it making the bloody thing. You know, or you'll probably go over a little bit, which is, you know, which some of the big entertainment shows do quite often go over in the first season. They then reclaw the money back by selling on the programme or the format, etc. So anything that's going to take away any kind of credit or any, or make it more expensive is going to damage the, the, the sort of fragility of this, this sort of ecosystem. I think this story is a very weird one because it doesn't make any economic sense. You know, I mean, again, it's, why are the government doing this? Is it a huge tax collection sort of gambit? Not really. You know, they're going to make money anyway. They're going to make a, a lot of money from tax, from sales, from everything. They make money off every sort of level of this. Mm. It doesn't make sense to sort of stymie the industry when it really is always teetering on the on the brink. You know, we're not Hollywood. Even Hollywood will go under if the, the tax credits are taken away. I mean, that's I'm old enough to remember this story coming coming back again and again and again. There's been since the 70s. You know, we've had uh, Hollywood crews coming over to England and making Star Wars and things like that because it was cheaper. You know, so anything that makes it more expensive or less flexible or whatever and, and, and a post-Brexit filming you know is now very complicated bringing in foreign workers and, and all this kind of stuff you know lots of people now are filming in like Hungary instead of filming in London mm. and and so it's a very fragile sort of ecosystem and this is like pouring pesticide over it you know it could kill more than it can cure. And just as the sort of Channel 4 privatisation threat has been uh, knocked on its head, another head has replaced it in this sort of government hydra. Do you think the government just don't understand the value of the creative industries and, and what it can bring to the country, but also to the Treasury as well? This particular story seems to be a classic, and it's so unusual for one part of government and another part of government to not coordinate. It's just... It's, uh, so it... it because from from my reading of it, I think it was the, the valuation office agency who are some sort of quango are doing a reevaluation of all business rates of all kinds of areas. So they, you know, they're surveyors. They've gone in. They're like studios. Okay, the market rate for studios is more than it was the last time we did the assessment, which was based on twenty fifteen prices. It's not particularly that they have gone. We're going to target film. They've just gone. The cost of running shops is less than it was last time we did this the cost of running studios we're going to charge more tax on that but it's down to dcms to go oh hang on that's that's not great we're going to introduce this incentive or tax offset so i don't think it's necessarily as pernicious as the government has decided it wants to tank all of the film studios and Mm. make it more expensive it's just that one one agency has done its job to go how much is the value of this business and another part of the government hasn't yet picked up on it. And fingers crossed with all the lobbying that's going on, there will be some of that happening because, as you point out, bringing up one of my media predictions, which is possibly, I don't know if I hold the record for the worst, like the fastest speed for a media prediction being wrong. <laughs> but um, <laughs> my, oh, maybe we'll have a bit of stability at DCMS. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, if this, this could be something that could be a quick win, perhaps, for getting industry back on side, just going, let's sort out this taxing so we don't lose lots of amazing film and TV production from the UK. 
Well, Stephen, I think you wrote at the end of last year about the kind of wave of old revivals in shows. I mean, anything which worries the sector means that they sort of lean back on the tried and tested rather than, than doing new things. Uh, isn't that another another problem for the sector? Uh, yes, absolutely. I mean, it's it's the the risk averse nature of, of the, the creative sector is terrible. And that is getting worse. That's why I made the kind of joke about the golden age of TV. I mean, it really isn't a golden age of TV. We we think we're in a golden age, but we're living in a kind of brutal kind of, oh, you know, life or death type thing where everything is about sort of trying to eke out a bit more, carry on getting another commission, whatever. But people aren't commissioning. People aren't making programmes. Anything that's a bit too expensive, they won't do it. This is the problem with any of these kind of stories is anything that suggests it will be harder to make, you know, it becomes a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. It is already very hard to make programmes. It's incredibly difficult to get a drama off the, off the ground. And, and this is the thing, you know, the government doesn't get it. The government doesn't understand culture. They don't understand media. These are businesses, you know, they wouldn't do it to the, 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 the banking industry in the same way, but they do it to TV because we're seen as a sort of soft industry full of creative wankers or whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, well, no, we're still businessmen. There's still, everything's about life and death and money and all the rest of it. It's exactly the same as every other industry. You know, it's, it's a business, show business, but we don't treat it like that. Well, thanks, Anne and Stephen. Stick around. We're going to be talking salaries and playing the media quiz. But before we get there, some new TV. Channel 4's brand new series, The Piano, aired on Wednesday night, hosted by Claudia Winkleman. I sat down with Richard McKerrow, CEO of Love Productions and creator of the show, to find out what all the buzz is about. I mean, it actually started with a conversation with Ian Katz and, funnily enough, at the Royal Festival Hall, which is where (laughs) we ended up. We were just sort of chatting about, you know, I'm very keen to do other things for Channel 4 other than just the Great British Bake Off and the Great Pottery Throwdown. And he was learning the piano and I was learning the piano, very much beginners. And and he just said, wouldn't it be amazing to have a sort of, I mean, it might be television suicide, but to uh, do a kind of desert island discs or something with those public pianos that I saw when he was wandering through St Pancras. And... Me as a frustrated musician from my teenage years, um, where I actually did record an album on a four-track Porter studio with a friend who became a much more successful musician, I immediately leapt at the idea, and also because I quite like challenges. I mean, having had Bake Off turned down for five years and told that sewing would be ridiculously tedious on television, I quite like it when people say it's probably, you know, there's a reason that such things haven't been televised and that they're only on the radio. I sort of leapt at the opportunity and said, look, I would love it. I love that idea. I love the, you know, the pianos that are in public spaces that have cropped up. And actually, we started off, we just sent a couple of our researchers down to shoot some taster tapes. And actually, we we made a kind of really nice 20-minute taster tape of some people who go and play the piano at, at stations. And it would have been a really good documentary I probably would have played at about 11 o'clock because um, it was very sort of observational and wonderful. But, the, you know, if you, if you went with only the, um, the people who went there, yeah, it just might have been a bit obscure. So th- we, we were thinking about how to make it bigger, what we could do to kind of, you know, because I suppose I've, I've learned through my television career that, you know, that you try and build an entertainment frame, but as long as what's within the frame is proper content, social purpose. You know, you, you want to get people to come to a subject that they wouldn't normally come to and therefore be transformed, therefore for it to change. So in that sense, I was trying to think, how can you make it bigger? 
And I thought, first of all, we need to kind of make it broad in terms of diverse cast. So every, you know, especially with the piano, you can be even more diverse than you mm. can be with baking, really. Also, I, I thought it's got to have diverse music. It can't just be classical. You know, it'd be nice if we got hip hop and pop and boogie woogie and everything like that. So that was the first part of the pitch to make it a bigger show. Then there was a question about can they have a competitive element? So we thought about that. And I suppose the light bulb moment for me was when we had the notion of, oh my gosh, what if it was, you know, it was observed by, I use the term judges tentatively, but they didn't know they were being judged. They think they're in a documentary. And then there's a big reveal at the end where they suddenly are told, thank you. We, we, we use the notion of introducing them to each other as a kind of alibi for then saying, actually, guess what? You were being watched and you were being watched by these people and they're going to choose one of you to go in a live concert. That was the initial idea. I mean, it kind of combines a few elements, doesn't it? So you've got that sort of documentary element. People are turning up at train yeah. stations to play the piano. You've then got a, the judging element, so Mika and Lang Lang to sort of watch and, and kind of narrate their performance a little bit. And then I guess you've got that that traditional thing of finding out about who these people are and what their background is and why they play the piano too. When I was watching it, I was thinking, it's quite fun having that surprise reveal, isn't it? That actually you're in a, you are in a competition. Yeah. You didn't realise you were. You are in a competition to win a chance to play at a Royal Festival Hall. So it does bring lots of different kind of format points together, doesn't it? You know, it's so difficult to do anything original these days because there's just been so much type, especially in the kind of competition reality genre. So that's where we really wanted to make it different. And also the language. I mean, we very rarely use the term judges. We try not to use the word competition. It's more of a, a sort of celebration. And as you'll find out in the final episode at the Festival Hall, it's, you know, there are little nods to a sort of performance of the night, but it's not kind of, you know, winner, winner, winner. And also you sort of find that, you know, they, they all get something. And also, I think the other thing is that while we were making it, I mean, I'm a great believer. I suppose it's my documentary kind of background is that you are trying to create a world where people forget the cameras are there, Mm. which is obviously impossible. But I often look back on Bake Off and I remember the moment that on the first ever trial casting, when these bakers came along to bake their things in front of Paul and Mary, as a documentary maker, I was, I was standing there watching. I was going, oh, my God, they don't care about the cameras. All <laughs> they care about is whether Mary and Paul like their cake or not. And that, I look back on that moment and think that was the sort of secret ingredient. So in that sense, now doing the piano, one of the things I'm keen to do is to, obviously, it's, you produce by not producing. You produce, but it's to give, hand over the controls to Claudia... Mika and Lang Lang as far as you can you know set the frame up and obviously film it and everything but as much as you allow Mika and Lang Lang to kind of create this final finale at the festival hall I mean I find that some of the best what I call constructive documentary is is where you you know you let it go you, you try and let it go rather than control it and go with what's happening I mean, actually, a really interesting point about that is I was really nervous with the choice of judges or observers or whatever we call them, because I really believe, I mean, this is what I love about making television is that, you know, in the act of being spectacularly wrong, you can get things right. (laughs) 
And what I mean by that is that I was really nervous about the fact that Mika and Lang Lang were so busy. There were these big mm. bookings, these big names. It was great that they were doing it for the passion rather than substantial, you know, dollops of cash. But they were doing it because they believed in it. But I couldn't get them to meet. And I always think that's a terrible mistake. You know, you need to get the relationship of your judges. They have a relationship and then they know what they're doing in terms of evaluating. But we just couldn't do it. And like, I think we managed to get a 15-minute Zoom with them on the Friday before we were at St. Oh, Pancras. Wow. And, and uh, Lang Lang was in Shanghai and Mika was in Milan. And they were flying in at the time of the kind of, you know, train strikes and delays. And we had set up everything at St. Pancras. And they literally walked in, met at one o'clock, started filming. And what I mean by that is it meant that their relationship developed while the cameras were rolling. So there was no, so the very thing that I was worried about actually I think gave it a bit of magic because what you see across the series and you will see it grow is actually a bromance, an extraordinary <laughs> bromance. And, um, and, and Claudia fits into it so well. They become like the kind of three magical musical musketeers, you know. They're, they're just wonderful together. They are real people and we explain to them, you know, will you be in this, you know, I, I don't know. I want to give her the benefit of the doubt mm. and say that it was kind of miscomprehension and ignorance rather than malevolence, if you know what I mean. And obviously another show we, we, we've mentioned briefly is, um, is Bake Off. How are you getting on recasting or re replacing uh, Matt Lucas? I think it's safe to say we are getting there. Mm. And I think, well, given that we have to start filming in April, um, I would hope that we will have some news for you within the next few weeks. Really excited about it. I mean, I was just going to say, it's one of those programmes uh, that has a lot of love. Uh, and, and I suppose when you approach these people, they're probably more up for it than, than um, some other shows. Well, I hope so. But that doesn't I mean, in a way that can make the job more difficult of getting the right person. But the most important thing is, I think, to find someone who realises that the real heart of Bake Off is love the bakers love the baking, someone who's curious and someone who cares and understands that the job as the MC or one of the MCs is to play that role and to look after the bakers during their experience and to be curious about what they're baking and to do it with a kind of charm, humour, kindness. I think that's the heart of it. But, you know, listen, and also, you know, be the first to hold up our hands and say that I feel that the last series was not our strongest. I think we had two series which we had to film during, you know, during COVID, the team here just went to enormous efforts and enormous sacrifice to get that filming done, you know, in a bubble. I feel, you know, we're having lots of conversation. And I think you have to do that with a series that has been going on now. We'll be going into, I think, season 14. Mm. You know, you've got to kind of take a look at it and go, shit, you know, the challenge is too complicated. You know, I think we're looking very, very, very hard at making sure that it's as good a series as it can be this next one. I think it's something also... <laughs> You know, obviously I learned when we when we left the BBC, the outcry was such that it makes you think <laughs> Bake Off belongs belongs to the people. Maybe yes. it doesn't belong to Love Productions. So you have to take very, very, very good care of it. So when people are criticising either the challenges have become too complicated or whatever, you know, that's something we take seriously and we try to do something about it. We're about to launch, well, not us, but Bake Off the musical is about to hit the West End. Premieres on February the 25th for 11 weeks and you know that's been five or six years of well four years of saying no 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 because it's a bit of a risk and we, we're doing it for creative reasons but you know that's a, we just have to look after what Bake Off is you know because because of the soul of it really.
Well, before we let you go, obviously you've got the musical coming up. What other projects are on your list for the rest of the year? Well, I mean, we've actually got a, um, a film going out tonight. So it's going out on Thursday, February the 16th, which features Prue Leith um, with her son, Danny Kruger. And actually, it's a really interesting interrogation into the whole debate about assisted dying. I mean, very interestingly, Prue is a passionate advocate of death with dignity and supports the assisted dying bill. When she was passionate about the subject, she introduced her conservative son to the subject, hoping he would back her, but then he ended up taking the other position. And so it's a really, really interesting film. We're developing another big series for Channel 4, which unfortunately I can't yet tell you about a new series and then we've you know certainly got our you know hands full with getting the next bake off and making sure that's as good as possible that was richard mccaro ceo of love productions and you can catch up on the channel 4 website and associated online tv platforms uh, and follow all the episodes which air on channel 4 at 9 p.m on a wednesday Stephen, have you seen uh, the piano this week I did. I watched it. I enjoyed it. It's very watchable. It's very, you know, nicely done and everything. But weirdly, the, the kind of the big reaction that you're expecting, the big reveal, you know, we've got Lang Lang and, and Mika who are watching and listening is slightly underwhelming. And then the sort of one of you is going to be picked is also a bit underwhelming and it doesn't quite work. And I'm being a bit picky because it's an enjoyable show, you know, and of course they're, they're sort of purporting to be an anti-competition format type of, you know, it's not fake, it's not judges, it's all that. You sort of miss a bit of that grammar of, of uh, how, a, how that, that climax works. So it mm. sort of peters out at the end. And when the person won last night, it could have been one of three or four. And it was a bit arbitrary as to why he got it. I mean, he was, he was good, but he didn't seem to be the obvious winner necessarily but i'll watch it again and remember if you fancy hearing more from richard you just need to be a patreon subscriber so head to patreon.com slash media pod where you'll find an archive of full-length interviews with all of our industry stars and experts right it's time for a short break we'll be back after this to look at whether salary transparency could help diversity in the industry plus a world radio day media quiz Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
So we're back with part two. Stephen and Anne are still with me. And we're taking a look at media companies making a rare move towards transparency. So this is uh, Insider disclosing the salaries of journalists uh, with the lowest paid roles, such as junior reporters coming in at about 35 grand and the highest for senior positions at 60K. And do you think companies should be disclosing salaries a bit more rather than just saying uh, it's competitive? Yes, absolutely. And I think this is a generational thing as well, because I'm a a zenial. And when I was still working in in an office, we would all talk to each other. So we all knew what everyone else was being paid. And we did that as kind of a way of protecting each other. But it wasn't, and well, the BBC has sort of very wide salary bands. So you, you, it's, you don't really know what people are being paid because it, it's so far from the bottom to the top of each grade, who, who knows? So we would all talk to each other. Gen Z are even more forthright and they will not apply for jobs unless the salary range is there. So I run TechCon, which is the engineering conference, and often people will message me and say, oh, we, we're hiring an engineer, would you mind popping it on your socials, which is totally fine. And I will always ask what the salary is. And if the company policy is that they won't publish a salary, I will usually call it out. I'll go, they won't tell us how much you're going to get paid. And it's a real barrier to people applying and it also does perpetuate unfairness. So good good for Insider for publishing their ranges. And actually, they don't have a massive ratio between the, the senior management and the junior staff either. So, so that's really good. I understand that there might be a range. You might pay someone who's got 20 years of experience a little bit more than someone who's just starting out. That's absolutely fine. But why would you not do it unless you know that you are perpetuating some kind of inequality or you're allowing the ability or the perception for discrimination to happen. I I just don't understand why you wouldn't say here's at least the range of the salary that we're thinking about. I mean, Stephen, is a lot of it actually down to companies just feeling a bit embarrassed sometimes about putting a number next to their job ads? Probably. I mean, in TV, it's, it's, it's quite hard faced. I mean, people talk about money all the time. I mean, not just in that sort of sharing your wages when you're in the office way, which everybody does, but actually in that sort of what's your rate? What's your rate? Because most people in TV are freelance and so they have to renegotiate every other job. And the production managers are very, again, brutal about trying to squeeze money off you. And so, you know, people fight over £50 a week and whatever, you know, on the rate. Are they £800 a week? Are they 825 Oh, it's 725 You know, or we can give you a good title on the credit but not give you as much money. That's what every, every job in TV is like now because... A TV career will be hundreds of freelance jobs. You soon get a good idea of what people are on. So there's never any real embarrassment about finding out about wages. So it's slightly, I mean, journalism is probably different because, you, you know, you, it, it, you're, you're doing a proper job. Whereas TV, you're, you're bought in for that, that sort of hired in for a, for a gig. And so people are, are very upfront and, and very naked about what they want and what they ask for and what they can get. And every job is is quite sort of hard on that. You know, I mean, people don't seem to realise you pay them an extra £25 a week, you can make them uh, work seven days a week and they'll do it with a smile on their face. Cut £15 a week off their rate, they hate you forever and will bitch to everybody in the industry. But they never seem to think like that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's so important and it's transparency and honesty is so central because we're all working our guts out all the time. You know what I mean? That's the thing about the, the creative industry. It's an exploitive industry, but you're doing it. And so to sort of hide wages is never a good idea. Well, Charlotte from Press Gazette in her piece about uh, what Insider were doing was saying that maybe it could uh, help address journalism's nepotism and class problem. I don't know whether you saw it, Stephen, floating around this week is uh, a map of uh, Nepo babies. Did you see this? I did. I went onto that map and I looked for who have I worked for and who am I currently <laughs> working for? And, oh, I found them on that map. It was fantastic. That map's sort of a basic blueprint 
but one, a fantastic eye-opener as to how the sort of the high-up establishment really has got its kind of claws into the kind of glamorous media. There's so many famous surnames and couples and relationships and sons and daughters and cousins and whatever. We're riddled with nepotism. And do you think that's the case? In some sectors of the industry, yes, and some not. I think there's an alternative perspective on children going in, uh, and especially in things like journalism or, or radio or TV. And yes, sometimes it might be that you have got someone with a really high-level job who's just made everything really easy. But I think when we're talking about barriers to entry, there's also about seeing a job and knowing it's real and that it's possible. I mean, I, I'm the first I'm the first in my family to go into broadcasting. You know, I've got, I've got friends who are, they're the first uh, in their families to go into journalism or broadcasting and their children are really interested genuinely in broadcasting journalism but that's because their children probably were that way inclined anyway but mm. also they've seen that it's real and it's possible and I think a lot of the jobs that we have you know working in film working in tv working in radio working in the creative industries they can seem really unattainable and unachievable and impossible if you grow up somewhere you don't grow up in London you don't grow up knowing people who do those that they seem risky jobs or you know this not for the likes of us and that kind of thing so I think you do have to be careful when you talk about nepotism is it that someone was given an unfair disadvantage and they were just handed an amazing career on a plate or is it that just like you get families where there might be doctors and nurses because you grow up going oh that's a career that's possible is it actually that you just have people who go oh yeah I could I could that's a real job and I know people who actually do it and you're not being discouraged from applying from it by people who naturally are trying to protect you from an insecure life <laughs> I mean my dad works at the local newspaper in Bournemouth and so I was very exposed to kind of that version of the media I mean Stephen Ann's right is, isn't it a lot of it just is sort of experience at home before you then go and get a experience at, at a job and definitely right you know if you don't know that you can work in tv you, you've got no chance you know having having just that basic inside information i mean the difference between uh, now and when i started in tv my dad was a footballer so had nothing to do with tv but now people don't need to work in tv to make money they don't need to work in tv to mm. make tv that that's a massive revolution when i started i started 30 years ago and you couldn't film your own shows you couldn't do your own podcast you couldn't do anything and so you had to go in as, as an ant, you know, and try and get through a crack in the door and then somehow survive being stamped on for the first few years. And then you were sort of OK. Whereas now I've spoken to people and they go, oh, I'm not going to go for a job on TV. I'll just make my own films. And you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, and that really is my sort of dinosaur status as I look down at these, what were you saying, gen zennials and whatevers and all these you know, cool new people and don't need the industry as much. And that's a good thing. That's definitely a good thing. Because, you know, the thing about the creative industry, we always need new blood. But how do you find that new blood? That's the thing. And and, and even though nepotism is a hor horrible thing, I've always found that once you get in, the door is wide open. It's just getting in that first bit. That's the hard part. Getting Climbing through the door. Because once you're in, you sink or swim on your talent, on your personality. I always used to say to people, don't be, don't be brilliant. Just be nice. Be hardworking at first. Then you can be brilliant. You know, you don't have to cure the problems of, of TV within the first week. You just have to sort of go and do the photocopy and get the coffees. You know what I mean? Just be nice to the people and they'll they'll reward you. But getting in that door, very difficult. Well, just like the black pudding industry, media thrives on new blood. Yeah. Uh, not my exactly. joke, I think, Danny Baker's. <laughs> As we mentioned before, it was World Radio Day this week. So I've got some questions about radio's past, present and future here on the Media Quiz. If you know the answer, just buzz in with your name. So Anne, you'll say... Anne. And Stephen, you will say... I'll say Stephen. 
Good. Off we go. Right. Question number one. Monday marked World Radio Day, but there was also a big centenary of a major broadcasting moment. What was it? Stephen, it was Wales. Wales apparently is 100 years old from media terms. There was a bit on BBC News the other night where they were showing Prince Charles's kind of uh, investiture and people speaking Welsh. I mean, you know, there was some Welsh person speaking Welsh. It was amazing. Hugh Edwards was in tears. <laughs> it, was, uh, it was very exciting. You know, apparently Wales has had its own culture for 100 years this week. Who knew? Well, yes, you, you are right. BBC Wales is first ever broadcast on the 13th of February, 1923, where traditional Welsh language folk songs were broadcast from Cardiff's 5WA radio station. And Anne, I mean, Cardiff, is, they've got a, a pretty new get-up 100 years on, haven't they? Yeah, I still haven't managed to go into their new building because COVID interrupted my invitation to go and nosy around the studios. But can I also plug uh, the Ministry of Happiness, which is my friend Gareth Gwynn's two-part comedy on BBC Radio Wales and on BBC Sounds all about the early days of Radio Wales and it is he was like it was so hard to write as a comedy because it was so bonkers and surreal in real life (laughs) and if you go to his Twitter thread then he's actually sort of done a tweet along about all the historical facts that were actually true including they went a bit like the government now they kind of went through a huge number of managers in a very short amount of time people kind of being drunk in charge and then other people being brought in from London and and various people kind of having day jobs where in the evening they just had to put on funny voices and present the children's program which was called something like the hour of the kiddie winks or something it was absolutely incredible uh, go and listen to that program it's really funny yes you must all do that right point to Stephen. question number two which- imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96 percent replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15 percent off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365 day returns. Media Powerhouse uh, has just launched two new UK radio stations. Anne. Anne. Global Radio. Yeah, so what have they launched? They've launched a spin-off of Capital, what's this, Capital mm-hmm. Chill or something, and they've yes. launched a Radio X Rock, which they haven't called Radio X Rock, they've called Radio X Classic Rock. Something yes, like that. yes. That, is, that is correct. With the, the chill service, Ashley Table King, who's the boss there, uh, says it's the uplifting euphoria of non-stop chill beats, bringing that Ibiza sunset vibe to you every day, whether that's working from home after the gym or simply starting the day with uplifting ambient beats. Stephen, are you going to tune in? Always, yeah. That's exact, perfect to me. I love listening to that stuff. Uh, no, actually, I do like the sound of that, but it does sound a bit oof, creepy. 
I don't know. Yeah, I've had a bit of a listen, and it is pretty ambient. It's quite. It's not um, like super mainstream that you would you would perhaps guess. Like just getting kind of capital playlist artists just slowed down. It is proper <laughs> chill. Uh, so, Sloan Radio, question three. You've got a point of piece. So it's this for the win. Which UK radio brand will launch two more premium subscription services this month? Anne. Oh, straight in. Anne. Uh, who is it? Bauer. Yes, you can pay to not have adverts. So that's. That's basically it. You can log in on their app, pay three ninety nine a month, and then not have to deal with lots of extra adverts. It's not. It's now not a bad offer. Three ninety nine. So across Absolute and Kiss and Magic and uh, now Greatest Hits. Uh, Stephen, would you pay not to hear from uh, Confused I am not going to be following Ken Bruce over, and will gladly never listen to him again. So I'm very, very uh, unlikely to be paying the money. I'll be too busy with Capital Chill. I'm afraid I'm going to be I'm going to be blissed out on the other stations. Excellent. Well, uh, congratulations to Anne. You win the media quiz this week. Uh, you get to launch your own new national radio station for whatever format you like. So you can have a think about that one. Thanks to you both for joining us on the show this week. Where can people keep up with uh, what you're doing? Anne? Uh, you can find me at annecharles.tv. That's Anne without an E or at Sparky and C on Twitter and I do lots of stuff for radio and audio people and I'm doing loads of work in object-based media which is the future of how we do radio media tv film everything production so if you're interested in that come and find me and Stephen when you're not watching television how can people keep up with what you're thinking about they can find me on the uh, on the socials on Facebook and Twitter um or they can see me begging outside the networks for a commission you know when I'm lying down, crying and pleading. I'm currently trying to come up with a clever idea about AI and sex for BBC Three, but, you know, who knows? I look forward to some AI sex on BBC Three or elsewhere very, very soon. Thanks both. And thank you to you for sticking with us all throughout this show and the podcast generally. If you enjoy it and are a regular listener, then why not become a patron of it? That helps us pay for production, helps us pay to go to events. And also it would make me feel not so depressed when I look at the Patreon number every week. So just go to patreon.com slash media pod. And of course, if you subscribe, as well as just having a warm feeling in your heart, you'll also get access to loads of deep dive interviews with our media experts, which can fill any long car journey and if you're feeling mean and I still think you are a bit mean if you uh, don't donate then you can sort of uh, win my love and respect back by giving a mention to the show on your social media whether it's LinkedIn or Twitter just find one of our posts and repost it new listeners for us is always good news and you or they can subscribe and follow the show podfollow.com slash the media podcast or their favourite podcast app of choice my name is Matt Deegan the producer was Phoebe Adler-Ryan with support from Matt Hill and it was a Rethink Audio production we'll see you next week Thank you.